All right, it's 10 o'clock. Let's take our seats and get our Bibles out and find 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. We've got a few missing in action this morning. So hopefully they'll be able to tune in on the internet and watch us live that way. Second Kings chapter 6, last week we finished verse 15 and we kind of left off in the middle of a situation, if you will. The Syrian king has issued an order to kidnap Elisha and bring him to the king. And the reason for this unlawful seizure of his person is that he's given Syrian intelligence to the king of Israel. And that intelligence resulted in several failed missions by the Syrians. And the king's not having it. He's not used to having his intel leaked. He thought he had a spy, but he didn't. It was God who's perfect foreknowledge, and in this case, his omnipresence and omniscience. That is, he's everywhere and he knows all things. That that was what he used to give divine revelation to Elisha about what the Syrian king was doing. So, now the Syrian army has compassed the city of Dothan, And that's where Elisha and his servant were. The Syrian king thought, well, I'll fix this problem. I'll just kidnap Elisha, and that will take care of it. What you don't realize, or what he didn't realize, is that God could use a camel to tell the king of Israel whatever the Syrian army was doing. He didn't have to have Elisha. In fact, he's used a donkey to speak before, hasn't he, to Balaam. So let's reread verse 15 and jump right into verse 16. If you just tuned in, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15, as we begin to read. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host, that's an army, compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Now, in answer to the servant's question, how shall we do, Elisha answers by telling him what not to do. In verse 16, and he answered, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. He said, fear not. I'm going to let you in on something that's not really a secret. At all. When trouble comes your way, fear not. Two simple words right there. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. And thy exceeding great reward. All Abram needed to know, 
And all we need to know is that God is our shield. Now, Jesus builds upon that truth. He amplifies it in a very interesting way in Luke chapter 12 and verse 4. Luke 12, verse 4. Where Jesus said, And I say unto you, my friends, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Boy, this one is hard for most people to swallow, isn't it? In not being afraid of them that kill the body, Jesus is also telling us not to be afraid of death. After all, why is the death row inmate afraid of the executioner? Or why is a person afraid of an armed robber? Both of those individuals, the executioner and the armed robber, have the power to take your life from you, whether it's legal or not. And it is death that such a person fears. So because a person fears death, then that person may fear the instrument of death as well, the, the robber who has the pistol or the executioner who throws the switch. But Jesus taught us not to be afraid of death or those who cause it. Because there is nothing they can do to you after you die. Yes, they could burn your body. They could defile it as they will the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. But you are no longer in that body if that body is dead. I had knee surgery back in 2004. And I remember the moments before going under. If you've had surgery, you probably have some memories of those moments. And I remember reading and signing a lot of paperwork. And some of that paperwork said in very kind language, you might die while under anesthesia. Those are comforting words. Now that thought alone would cause many people to panic to have an anxiety attack and all of that. And it has. Some, some of you may have had that experience. So guess what they had ready for me? They had a shot. They said it would calm my nerves. They would give me that shot before they gave me the shot that put me out for the surgery. Well, I was fine. I didn't need that shot. I knew that if I died... I'd go to be with Jesus, and I had the greatest calm come over me. And by God's grace, I was not afraid. I was hopeful to come out of the surgery and see my family again, and thank you, Lord, I did. But if I didn't, I was going to go be with Jesus. Wouldn't have hurt me any. Others would have cried. When you're afraid, God says, fear not. That's not just a catchy saying. It's Bible. He says, fear not. So if you're one of those persons who are anxious, you fret a lot or you worry or you're scared of 
things, I'll tell you the same thing God does is fear not. That's the greatest counsel that I can give you is what the Bible says. And that will solve a whole lot of spiritual and emotional problems. The next time that you worry about something, you're anxious, you fret, or you're downright scared, I want you to just stop and think about something. Ask yourself, what is it right now that I'm scared of? What is it that right now that I'm worrying about? Try to break it down a little bit because it gets overwhelming, doesn't it? And if you answer me by saying, well, Brother Andy, I just I can't help it. That's just the way I am. I just worry and fret all the time. I'm going to say this to you very gently but very firmly, that that is a poor substitute for saying, I'm going to work on that. And I'm going to work on it by believing what God said and what Elisha said to his servant, fear not. Yes, it can be a weak spot, and it is for many. But you are responsible for working on it. The scripture tells you how. Now listen, you may, if you're one of those people who does worry and fret and you're scared of a lot of things, and you see somebody who's not, you may think, well, he doesn't care. He has a lackadaisical attitude about trouble. When in reality... It may mean that the person is trusting in God's plan rather than allowing earthly circumstances to control how he or she responds to trouble. Think about how you react to a thunderstorm. There's a good example. It's loud. Now, my son-in-law was stationed in uh, Washington up around Seattle And from what I understand, they didn't have a lot of thunderstorms. They had a lot of rain and a lot of snow in certain parts of of the country, but not the severe thunderstorms that we have here with the lightning and the hail and the tornadoes and the high winds that suddenly come upon you, and they're destructive. But a thunderstorm is loud, and there's lightning flashing everywhere, and let's say there's a tornado warning with it. When all of that happens, do you panic and holler and scream? Or do you just take shelter and trust the Lord to bring you through the storm? What if the storm kills you? If you're a Christian, you go be with the Lord. If you live, you thank him for surviving the storm, don't you? Have you ever heard anyone, now I want you to think back to all of the I was a weather channel buff back when it was the pure weather channel. When it got woke, I took off. That was enough for me. But when we had 24-hour weather and the the weather forecasters were well-dressed and uh, weren't worried about being politically correct, then I watched it quite a bit to keep up with the weather. I wanted to know if there was a raindrop within a mile of me. I wanted to know about it. And I watched a lot of interviews from people who had survived tornadoes. They're standing in the midst of all of that rubble and twisted metal. Nothing left. It's destroyed, but they're alive, and their families are alive. And I never heard a single one of them say, I'll tell you what got me through this storm. 
It was anxiety and worry and streaking at the top of my lungs. That's what did it. Well, what you hear many people say, not all, but many, is, thank God that I'm alive. Yes, we lost all our property. Our home is gone. All the things that were precious in there to us, the pictures, maybe even the pets, are gone. But I've got my husband or my wife and my kids, and thank God we're still alive. So if it's God who you thank after the storm, then why not trust him before the storm? We have all the anxiety and the worry and the being scared before the storm, and yet when we survive, we said, oh, thank God. What if we reversed time, we went backward, and we said, you know what? This next storm, I know what I usually do. I do like this servant. I said, oh, what are we going to do, Master? But I'm going to remember what God said, fear not. And I'm going to trust him going into this, not just the physical storms, but all of them. All of the ones. Every one of you are facing one, or you faced one, or you're about to. You don't get out of this life without facing storms of one kind or another. Now, if you'll get a hold of that, that is a life-changing truth for you. Elisha's servant looked at the army around him instead of the God above him. But Elisha trusted in the God above him to deal with the army around him. Two totally different approaches. Now, what was the basis for which Elisha told his servant, fear not? Well, look back in the text in verse 16. Fear not for, you could use the word because right there. For or because they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Although an entire army had surrounded the city of Dothan, Elisha had the nerve to say, we have more than they do. The city of Dothan had more soldiers than the entire Syrian army. That's preposterous at least from the servant's point of view, because he could only see as Lot did when he lifted up his eyes, his eyes and beheld the plain of Jordan that was well watered, and he chose the, that place, and he went to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it didn't work out well for him. But Abraham in those days trusted the Lord. He said, wherever God takes me, is fine with me. When he left his homeland, he didn't know where he was going, but God did. And that's all that mattered to Abraham. If you're driving a car and you know where you're going and your passenger has no idea, that's not a problem, is it? Because they've said, you know, I don't know how to get where we're going, but I know you do. I'm just going to sit over here and enjoy the ride. But what if the passenger knows where you're going, but the driver doesn't? Now, that'd be a problem. What if neither one of you know where you're going? That might be cause to worry. But see, God knew, and God showed Elisha that he had the advantage because who he had with him was more than all of the members of the army, of the Syrian army that had surrounded Dothan. Now, let's see how this could be so. Verse 17, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, 
Open his eyes that he may see. He's talking about his servant, the one who was worrying. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now these were spiritual beings, the angelic host, the host of God's army that is not visible to the naked eye, that God, by his grace, determined to show this young man so that he would know that what Elisha said was true. To that which could only be known by faith, this young man simply needed his eyes opened. He could see fine with his physical eyes. He could tell they were outnumbered, at least in the flesh. But he needed to be able to see with the eye of faith. That's not just some saying. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, Hebrews 11 verse 1, gives you the definition of faith. I love when the Bible does that. He said, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Not seen. Why could this young man not see that what Elisha said was true? It was a lack of faith. Now, don't leave here or come away from the internet experience with us thinking, all right, if I'll just have faith, God will show me an army of chariots of fire with my own eyes too. No, he won't, not necessarily. That's not what the takeaway is there. The takeaway is that when God opened this servant's eyes, he saw things the way God saw them. That's the bigger truth here. And... This mountain full of horses and chariots of fire that were round about Elisha was what the servant could not see. And this was nothing short of the, than the army of the Lord, one that's not yet been seen by human eyes, but which awaits the revelation, the unveiling. And that army will overcome all who fight against the Lord. I'm going to read you a passage from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 15. Revelation 19, 11 through 15, where the apostle John wrote, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Faithful and True are both capitalized. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see, this servant, Elisha's servant, believed Israel was doomed because he saw a large host of the army of Syria surrounding Dothan. But when God opened his eyes, he saw what had been there all along, but which he could not see until his eyes were opened. Now, Elisha, on the other hand, 
had seen a chariot of fire take his master Elijah into heaven. You remember that? A few chapters back, they were walking together side by side, and that chariot split the two of them. Chariot of fire, the Bible says. And Elijah was caught up into heaven by a whirlwind. So Elisha knew God had a whole slew of chariots of fire, as many as he wanted. Now the unbelievers of this world believe there is no army surrounding Elisha. They would hear Elisha say something like that and think, why you foolish man, just look. Well that's the problem, just look is the problem, isn't it? (laughs) Rather than just believe what God's word says. They, They believe there's no army surrounding Elisha, no chariots, no coming king of kings. No sharp two-edged sword that will smite the nations. But we who are Christ's at his coming, all Christians from all the ages, believe by faith that that which we will see by sight is already there. It'll be revealed to us when this wonderful event comes to pass that Jesus comes to claim his own. Back in our text in 2 Kings 5, let's look at verse 18. And when they came down to him, now that's the Syrian army, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. He said, Smite or strike this people with blindness. In Genesis chapter 19, You may remember the story of Lot, particularly when he lived in Sodom and God sent these two angels, men, messengers to him and told him, we're going to destroy this place. It's wicked and it's going to be destroyed. But before all this took place, these perverted men wanted to have sexual relations with these two messengers whom God sent. It's just like the United States and probably most of the world. And after the angels pulled Lot into the house, as he protested to these men, he did wickedly, he said, no, don't take them. I've got some daughters you can have. Now, that was weak of him to say that. But the angels pulled Lot inside the door And something happened to those enemies who were outside the door, those wicked men. In Genesis 19, and it's verse 19, and it says, And they, that's these angels, smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So this blindness, as in our text is a sudden blindness. That's the implication. It's one that's brought on by the Lord. It's not a gradual dimming of the eyes over time that comes with age, the blurring of the vision as we get older. It's acute. It's severe. And both times the Hebrew word for that blindness is used in the Old Testament, it's used to afflict the enemies of God's people so that they cannot accomplish their wicked purpose. And that's what's happening right here in our text. You know, physical blindness teaches us or should teach us about spiritual blindness. 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So from that teaching we learn that people who are unbelievers are spiritually blind, whether their biological eyes can see or not. There are people with 20-10 vision who could be snipers for the most elite military groups in the world who are spiritually blind. They're just as blind as a bat. And I don't know how blind a bat is, but apparently it's pretty bad. So I've always heard that. And it's Satan who blinded their eyes. Just like the text tells us. But the glorious gospel of Christ takes those blind eyes and opens them as it shines to the one who believes it. Now the unbelieving world goes around blind and says, no, nope, I, don't, I don't need that light. I don't want that light to shine. I've heard about it. Don't need it. I'm fine. But we who are blind spiritually and realize we are say, shine it. I want to see. As that man approached Jesus and said, open my eyes that I may see. He wanted to see. And the blindness of these Syrian soldiers was a type of spiritual blindness because they had set themselves against God's man and therefore God's plan. And God answered Elisha's prayer by blinding, physically blinding those Syrians. Now verse 19, And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me. And I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. After reading this verse, you might ask yourself, why would Elisha take these now blind Syrian soldiers to Samaria from Dothan? And why would he say, I will bring you to the man whom you seek? If you remember, it wasn't originally Elisha whom the Syrians were after. They were after the Israeli army. They were after the king of Israel. If you're going to attack a country, eventually you want, if, if you're doing what the Syrians were doing, trying to conquer, you eventually want to get their king, their ruler. Take them out so you can be the new ruler or set one up. So Elisha wasn't their original target, but because God used him to derail their plans, their military strategy, now he was their target. Syria got sidetracked when they went after Elisha and Dothan. So Elisha was simply redirecting them to the place they originally wanted to go. And don't forget these Syrians all the way from Dothan to or from Samaria, Dothan to Samaria. And Dothan is apparently north of Samaria. It's called a different town now. I think it's called Tel Dotha or something like that. But they were blind all the way. And in their physical blindness, the Syrians had to hold close to the man of God who could guide them. 
if he says, follow me, that meant there had to be some shoulder grabbing or hand holding or something going on. If you've ever helped a person who's blind and who's not used to getting around yet, uh, perhaps somebody who was blinded in an accident or has had eye surgery and can't see and you've led them around, you know how important it is not to just walk and say, well, follow me. You have to hold on to them. And you have to make sure when you go through a doorway that, that they're going to make it. They can't see, and they're not used to negotiating their way, navigating without some help. So this happened all the way back to Samaria from Dothan. Those blind soldiers could not wander away from Elisha, or they'd be lost in their way, wouldn't they? They had to commit themselves to Elisha and completely trust that he was the only one who knew how to keep them on the right way and that he would do so. Now this was formerly a bunch of rugged, vicious soldiers with an attack plan ready to kill and they probably killed many times before. Now they're a vulnerable group of blind men being led about by the man of God, the very one whom they sought to destroy. Remind you of the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul could see just fine, but he was spiritually blind. And he had obtained warrants to arrest and imprison Christians. And on the road to Damascus, God struck him down. And he was blind so that he had to be led about by the hand. And we know Paul was converted. He became a Christian. God took the scales off of his eyes and he was able to see, though some would opine that he was not able to see as well as before, but that's for another day. Now let's look in verse 20. And it came to pass... When they were come into Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men. Now, see, that's how we know they were still blind on the journey. They were blind, and now he said, open their eyes. Open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Imagine that. The last time they were able to see anything, there was a city in the midst of them. They had surrounded it. And now they've been led away and probably disarmed. And they're standing in the midst of Samaria, the capital city of Israel. That's not a good look, is it, for the Syrian army? Not a lot of hope there. This was quite a disadvantage for them. Where they had a better advantage in Dothan. Verse 21. And the king of Israel, now to remind you, his name is Jehoram. Although we don't see his name mentioned too much here, we previously learned it is Jehoram. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Almost childlike, isn't it? The king of Israel asking, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? It's like a little boy who finds a puppy comes home with it and says, Mommy, can I keep him? Can I keep him? Oh, please, Mommy. That's, I don't know why that image came to mind, this foolish king, but that's what he appeared to be to me. When you look at the thought process of the king of Israel, 
on one hand, it may seem logical. Hey, let's kill off these guys. But on the other hand, it may leave you shaking your head. Yes, it is true that God commanded his people when they would go into battle to destroy the enemy, to leave none standing, destroy young and old, men and women, animals, tear down their cities, burn them up, don't take their treasures from them in some cases. And Israel had been a colossal failure at doing this, at following God's instructions. So their enemies, like these Syrians, just kept coming back for more. But if you look at Elisha's prayer to God, back in verse 18, he asked God to smite these Syrians with blindness, not with the edge of the sword. Many of God's enemies are smitten with the edge of the sword, but it's done in battle. So if it were God's intention all along to kill these Syrian soldiers, he would have either already done it, in my estimation, or Elisha would have asked him to do it back in Dothan. Why spare them in Dothan, blind them, march them all the way across that terrain to Samaria, open their eyes, and then kill them. What purpose might that serve? Well, that's not what happened here. God had a greater purpose in letting these Syrian soldiers live and then be blinded and then be marched to Samaria. And it wasn't so that this king, who's kind of a pot licker, could kill off enemy soldiers that someone else captured. How brave do you have to be to do that? And this uh, reminded me, and I'll, I'll read it to you here in just a second. If we go to verse 22, it says, Thou shalt not smite them. They've already been smitten by the Lord with blindness. And Elisha now uses, in the next verse or two, a military reason sounding an awful lot like he was reading from the Geneva Convention. In fact, let's finish reading verse 22. And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. There's a whole lot said right here. Article 5 of the Third Geneva Convention, and some of you military folks may have this memorized by heart. Don't know. It says that prisoners of war, as defined in Article 4, are protected from the time of their capture until their final repatriation. That means sending them back to their country. This verse may very well be where the idea for the Geneva Convention came from. Most of our laws have biblical origins, whether the unbelieving lawmakers want to acknowledge that or not. He asked him, to, he asked the king, Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? If the Israeli army wanted to kill someone during battle, they would kill them in the field. That stands to reason. It's a waste of time and energy, resources, and manpower to capture an enemy combatant, 
march them to your base, and then just kill them there. So the fact that an enemy is captured meant there was some other use for him. What would that use be? Well, perhaps a prisoner exchange, a negotiation of some type, gathering intelligence from that enemy combatant. Every military force does that. Or putting that prisoner on trial for a war crime at a later date. But he further said in the text, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. That is, treat them well and then repatriate them. And this is a gracious act on the part of Elisha and it reflects the grace of God. It reflects the grace that God shows to undeserving sinners. After all, these Syrians had surrounded Dothan. Dothan didn't surround Damascus. The Syrians were the aggressors here. They didn't deserve any mercy. They had offended the nation of Israel. In verse 23, And he prepared great provision for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. The bands, and that, that'll be important when we go to verse 24. So the bands of Syria, these marauding bands as this one was, came no more into the land of Israel. Catch this. After blind soldiers who were formerly the enemies of Israel and Israel's God were fed and watered and repatriated, that group never came back to fight against Israel again. And when God opens the spiritually blind eyes of an unbeliever, he shows them grace. And those who before were smitten with blindness have their eyes opened. They're nourished by the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the water of life. He said, set bread and water before them, the water of life, which is the word of God. And they're set free. And those whose eyes are opened, who are nourished by the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel, by the water of life, which is the word of God, those who put their trust in what Jesus has done, that's just saying the same thing, those people can never be God's enemies again. And they will not be the enemies of God's people. Now we're talking about Christians. We're not talking about everyone who says he's a Christian or everyone who says he goes to this church or that church or he believes in God, we're talking about God's people. And the Bible tells us, and the Lord knoweth them that are his. He does. And for those people, this is an absolute truth. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives. There you go. Who were these Syrian soldiers? They were captives, weren't they? And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So let this passage we read in our text be a reminder about the grace of God to 
us who, like those blinded Syrian soldiers, did not deserve to have our eyes open, did not deserve to be fed, nor to be given the water of life. Now let's go to verse 24. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad king of Syria gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. Now the reason I wanted you to pay attention to the phrase in verse 23, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel, is that if you read that and then you read verse 24, you'll think, wait a minute. It just said that the bands of Syria never came to Israel again, and the very next verse says Syria attacked Israel. So you have to pay attention to the words that are in there, otherwise you can get confused. Those bands did not come against Israel anymore. Those individuals in those bands, the Bible is true. But as we will see, not every Syrian soldier in the entire force, not everyone in the camp of the the Syrian king was a recipient of the grace shown to the bands we just read about. They could have been. Those bands could have gone back to Syria, all of those soldiers, and said, man, you guys, listen to what happened to us. You know what we call that? Witnessing. That's what we call it, witnessing. And they could have gone back and said to their king and to their people, Folks, we were against Israel and against Israel's God. We were blind, and God showed it to us. He made us physically blind. We were spiritually blind, but he made us physically blind to demonstrate to us how helpless we are against him, to show us what we really were, and marched us to Samaria, opened our eyes, fed us, watered us, and set us free. And we're never the enemies of that group again. We won't go back. And all of the Syrians who would have heard that and who probably did hear that could have said the same thing as this band of Syrian soldiers. You know what? We want to know about that grace. We want that grace. We want our eyes open. We don't want to be the enemies of God anymore. We want to be accepted by God and therefore by God's people who Israel was supposed to represent. They could have said, wow, did you see how gracious God was to that band of Syrians? We'll have some. But another thing to note in verse 24 is that it says that Ben-Hadad gathered up all of his host, his host, not a band of Syrians that we read about, but his host. He gathered up those who were loyal to him. And that's what Satan does, isn't it? He gathers those who are loyal to him. And people say, well, I'm not loyal to Satan. Are you an unbeliever? Well, yeah. Well, then you're loyal to Satan. That's all he wants. You're either a believer or you're an unbeliever. You're either of your father the devil or you have a a spiritual father, heavenly father, because you're a Christian. It's one or the two. But what we don't see in this group or who we don't see is Naaman. Naaman... His name is not mentioned anymore. He doesn't go back and fight against Israel. Verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver 
and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Now we're going to close right here and come back and expound on verse 25 because it will take a little longer than the one minute we have remaining and I don't want to hurry it. So with that, we'll close and let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for each person here, each person who watched on the internet and those who will watch later and pray that you would take the truth from your word impress it upon our hearts and lord help us to meditate on that rather than the foolishness that this world keeps dumping on us day by day and to stay our minds on you and to meditate upon your word and we pray for the pastor in the next hour for the message that will be brought that we'll receive it with open hearts, that we'll believe again the truth that is preached and be strengthened thereby. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.